This is a conversation with Disha Saraki and Mohammed Kabir. Disha and Kabir both work at Corvus Robotics. Disha is the head of special projects and an early employee at Corvus, while Kabir is a co-founder and the CTO at Corvus. Corvus Robotics is a Boston-based startup that makes a drone to fly around warehouses and help with inventory management. Their drone, the Corvus One, seems to promise to reduce inventory loss in warehouses, which currently happens to a staggering rate, as you'll find out in the interview. They speak about flying their drone in warehouses, working with customers, safety, fleet management, how Corvus is funded, and they give advice to aspiring entrepreneurs. This is the SenseThink Act podcast. I'm Audro Nash. Thank you to our founding sponsor, Open Robotics. And here is my conversation with Tisha and Kabir. Kabir, um, would you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm Kabir. Um, I'm the I'm a co-founder and CTO of Corvus Robotics. Um, hi. Um, and Tisha. Sure. Hi, I'm Disha. Um, I work as the head of special projects at Corvus Robotics. Um, I lead basically uh, all the product lines here at Corvus. Mm -hmm. And she's yeah. also one of our early employees, one of the very first. Gotcha. How, how large are you guys now? We're a team of about 15 people uh, across engineering and non-engineering roles. So Disha, when what number employee were you? I was around the second, probably. Yeah, I think wow. she's, she's the second employee. Yeah. Right after you, Kabir. Uh, uh, yes. Apart from the co-founders. Apart yeah. from the founders. Yeah, I see. Uh, so tell me about Corvus. Like, yeah, tell me sure. About what it, uh, the mission and everything. Yeah, sure. So. Um, when we started out um, sometime in 2017 or so, um, we saw this a whole bunch of uh, robotics companies, newly formed robotics companies, um, really kind of doing great things in the warehouse and industrial automation space. And um, generally, uh, my background is that I come from aerial robots, so I really love flying things and making drones. So when we started the company, uh, we kind of were like looking for use cases which we could automate, kind of putting together this um, industrial automation space and aerial robotics. And I think we found a pretty good niche um, and decided to pursue it, which is warehouse inventory management. That's kind of our uh, singular large focus um, throughout the company. So all our product lines um, are kind of trying to solve for that one specific thing, which is uh, warehouse inventory. And that's where the idea for um, Corvus One was born. Um, what Corvus One is, it's a drone which, which, does, which helps warehouses um, do inventory. Um, this is a huge market. Um, warehouses lose millions and billions of dollars worth of goods from inside their own facilities every year. And this is the problem we set out to solve. Why is that? Why are they losing millions and billions of dollars right, of goods? Right. So the way warehouses um, do inventory management today is whenever um, they, they send a person out with like a handheld barcode scanner, and then this person goes up and down the racks. So these are huge facilities. They can be millions of square feet. So this person goes up and down the racks with this uh, handheld barcode scanner. 
and basically scans barcodes on the on whatever stuff they have on the shelves and then they basically write down or somehow tie back into their um, warehouse management system where this thing was now invariably because there is a human involved in the loop um, this introduces a lot of errors and typically um, i think the nationwide average for um, kind of the inventory accuracy across warehouses in the u.s it's something about 40 to 60 percent which is actually quite bad so they lose half of their stuff just because they don't know where they uh, put it how how could that be that they lose 40 to six they only retain 46 to 60 percent yeah. they lose 40? yeah so, so so what happens is like why why are these right why such a large number of loss right so um, basically, um, the way inventory comes into warehouses, you basically unload from trucks, and then there is a person who is taking it from these uh, truck bays and then putting it in the shelf somewhere. Um, and this person is responsible for kind of doing a, an incremental scan, so they can um, uh, so so basically they can input into their warehouse management system where this particular thing was put. So it's basically um, all deltas. So it's, it's as things mean, come in. What do you mean deltas? It's all, it's every, it's the change effectively? Yes, yes, it is the change. So every time uh, there's a change, they update their uh, warehouse management system. But invariably, because there isn't like a, a global view of the warehouse per se, um, errors build up over time. Why, why are those errors building up, though? I mean, if I just put something there and leave it there, um, it should stay there, and it shouldn't matter that I only have deltas. Right. Um, what's going on? Are people stealing some of the packages? Do people move it um, without you knowing? Or, like, what, what's creating 60% of the loss right. of... So I think it, it, it's a bunch of human factors at the end of the day. Um, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that stealing is a big one, but I'm sure it is an actual problem. Um, one of the main things we've seen is people just put it in the wrong place in the first place. So basically you say that you're putting it in whatever aisle A slot B, but then you've put it in aisle A slot C, the one next to it. And they just don't care about um, where they put it at the end of the day. Because, you mean the person yeah, who puts it there yeah, is like the person. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah, they're, they're processing like thousands of orders a day. So it's really hard, um, at, even at the human level, to kind of keep up that 100% accuracy um, in your yeah, head. Yeah, it seems like getting one and two wrong if you're getting that level of like loss, which is kind of nuts. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge problem. It sounds ridiculous, but it is what it is. And that's that's what we set out to solve. So then, um, what your, so tell me a bit about how you're solving it with your Corvus 1 drone. Sure. So what Corpus One is, it's basically a full cycle um, autonomous solution. Um, it's a drone and this charging dock, which we go and install in facilities. So it sits at the end of um, warehouse racks. And it does scheduled flights on its own and then goes out into the aisles, scans inventory as it's flying. It finds um, barcode, scans them comes back home, lands, and then mm -hmm. we process this data and then send it to the customer, um, usually through some sort of digital data dump. And what this does is we're basically taking that person who was um, doing this with a barcode scanner and we put the barcode scanner on the drone. Mm -hmm. And then we can do this repeatedly because, well, it's a drone. 
they don't get tired. Yeah. So you're thinking of this. So if you were thinking of the diff, so it's kind of like an edge detection and an image or something like this. So you only get like, I don't know, you're only getting the difference. It's not a very clear way to see the whole state of the warehouse. Right. And so exactly. now what you're saying is your drone flies around periodically. And so you can mm -hmm. kind of get updates over time of where all the packages are. Exactly. And if you do this frequently enough, um, we can basically get that global view of the warehouse basically every day, depending on the size of the facility. Okay. Uh, yeah, generally, like to add to that, uh, generally inventory counts are taken by warehouses maybe once a year, but with the drone, we're able to get um, the entire inventory counts multiple times a year. So that gives you a great idea of like historically timestamped data which you can go back to and refer to and like locate every item at the warehouse at any instant. Gotcha. Very interesting. Now, um, how, I mean, thinking about this crazy loss um, that puzzles me, honestly, that it's so large and I imagine like goods are twice as expensive as they would be if they didn't have this loss. Is that true? Would you think? Like, that, that's probably included in the cost of things. Yeah, so the way the business model for warehouses work is they just write this loss off. So they, they account for that loss as they're moving stuff around. Write it off in what way? Um, as just you... lost. Ah, uh, okay, but it... Yeah. But it's still in their facility somewhere. It's, they just don't know where. Huh. Interesting. So then, um, with... The perspective of flying the drone around often, um, you can kind of get a better sense, doesn't require the human to place the package as accurately or in the specific section so you can manage it, um, or at least in the one that they say it's placed in, because I would imagine exactly. the disparity would be the, the exactly. reason for the error. Um, so then from that, you can kind of see if things are missing. Or like if it was here and now it's not, you at least have a small window of time to investigate where it has gone to or where it exactly. might be moved or something like this. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's not always just mislotting of uh, items, but sometimes because there are humans in the loop, uh, people also forget to just scan because they're taking care of thousands of orders a day. And uh, it's, it's easy if you're also on the ground level, but uh, warehouse racks go up to like 20 feet or 20 to 30 feet and getting up a forklift scanning and then coming down going to the next track at the same height is not an easy feat so human error does play a big part in this as well I see yeah that's a good point that they're so high um, that these packages are just stored with layer on layer on layer of packages um, is that the motivation for the drone? Uh, partly, yes. Uh, it's like humans can do um, inventory tracking at ground level, probably at the same rate. But uh, as the height increases, the complexity increases, and that's where the drone comes in. And we Why get does to the complexity do... increase because you have to have some sort of basket yeah. or something to lift the person, and you need a person exactly. manning. Yeah. The thing that drives and holds the basket. Yep. I'm picturing one of those like um, things that they put up power lines or go and 
work on the power lines with. I don't know how accurate yeah, that would be. It's, it's actually uh, quite close. So they have forklifts or bucket trucks. And basically, there's a person in a harness um, clipped to that, and then they go up in that, and they're holding oh. the barcode scanner. And it's ac it, it's terrifying. actually quite dangerous. Yeah, it is quite terrifying. Like we've we've been in them just to get a feel for what it's like to do this manually, and you it's actually wore quite the terrifying. And we're lifted by a yes. forklift. Yes. yes, yes, that's awesome. Yeah. I like that you guys do that. Awesome. Yeah. How was it? Terrifying. It's it's terrifying. Pretty much, yes. I'm just imagining like dangling, trying to scan packages. Um, that sounds incredibly difficult. Yeah. Okay. Um, so being a drone really helps you get to those high packages very easy. It's almost free because you just have to pilot it. Um, is there other other advantages to having a drone rather than like a robot with like a real big telescoping pole or something right. like this? Right, so we've, when we started, uh, we've actually looked into all of the options, um, starting from like a lower complexity, like a ground robot is obviously easier to build, right, because it's not flying. Um, but it turns out that when you get your pole 20 feet high, it becomes really hard to make the robot not tip over, uh, just from the weight of mm -hmm. the pole. Um, and then if you want to kind of counter that, you need to make your robot, like the, you need to really increase wide. the size of the base, you need to put in more batteries, more weight. And it's like a, it's a pretty bad trade-off at the end of the day, if you want to do anything of that kind. Okay. Yeah. And then so you basically, with the drone, the Corvus One, mm -hmm. um, you have the drone flying and it has effectively a barcode scanner attached to it. And it's just mm -hmm. pointing that at the packages. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes, yeah. exactly. And so now it's flying around from package to package, just scanning all of the different visible barcodes. Exactly. Huh. Okay. So that's very interesting. Oh, how um, how far into how how many systems are deployed, and um, like where are you guys at in terms of deploying yours to different warehouses, your system to different warehouses? Right, so we have a bunch of customers. Uh, we don't publish the exact number on systems deployed, um, but it is uh, significant enough that we're getting very interesting fleet insights from them. So, Can you um, an order of magnitude? Is it like 10, 100? It's thousand? on the order of 100, yes. Oh, that's really exciting. 100 yeah. robots out there or 100 warehouses? Yes, 100 Got vehicles, it. yeah. And when you say fleet, insights into fleet management, Mm -hmm. um, you're meaning multiple of your drone systems in a single warehouse and how to like True. efficiently go exactly. about scanning them? Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. That's not, tell me a bit about that. The different things you're realizing at a fleet level of controlling your drones. Sure. Um, let's see. So in general, the way we design our system, it's quite scalable. So um, if we want to scale to a larger facility, we can just add systems, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, they talk to each other. The, the charging docks can talk to each other and kind of coordinate. And one of the things we're just starting to roll out is basically this orchestration engine, which has a global view of the entire warehouse, and then it can basically um, automatically um, task drones to go and scan certain parts, either 
maybe it's a high traffic area, which we are um, kind of inferring from previous flights, that if there's a lot of change and we can see that in the data, um, oh, we, cool. can, we can task um, more drones to kind of focus on that one area and things like that. That's really cool. Yeah. Disha, do you have anything to add? Um, apart from that, we also give kind of a high level control to uh, the people at the warehouse as well. Uh, we have uh, scheduling uh, online where warehouse managers can schedule what time uh, they want the drone to go and scan what location. So, mm. and then the charging or orchestration figures out which drone to send there and um, autonomously does all the missions and comes back and charges again. So that scheduling that you mentioned, Tisha, um, it's like um, you try to avoid when people are in the area or what kind of, why would I want to schedule the flights of these drones? So uh, there are times in the warehouse where uh, there's too much traffic in an area and you'd rather uh, dedicate the drone to less traffic areas. There are different shifts mm -hmm. during the day where like probably night shifts have less number of people around and uh, you want to get a scan of whatever was moved during the day and that works out better for people. So we give customers that level of control to decide what and how they want to use this product as well. Gotcha. And Kabir, that what you mentioned for it recognizing high traffic areas that have a lot of change and trying to do them more. I was imagining, um, just, I, I didn't understand what about the fleet management was extremely interesting before because it was like, oh, you just patrol certain regions. Right. But then um, if a certain region has a lot more change, you want to make more passes of it because you want to hire exactly. more temporal data. That's very interesting. Yeah. Gotcha. How, so now that you have a hundred robots out there or so, like order of magnitude, um, how is this affecting um, package loss? Right, right, right. So um, one of the things we've uh, begun seeing is that um, we've actually been able to increase the inventory accuracy for warehouses significantly. Um, it really depends on a per facility level, how much we can help just because of facility dynamics, the mm -hmm. workers there, um, their existing practices. Um, we don't have any specific numbers which we want to share at this point, just because it's extremely facility specific. Even mm -hmm. like any vague ballpark number I give will be wrong. So um, you yeah. mean in a specific instance of the thing? Yeah. But I mean, maybe you have like an average or something, or like a median level of improvement. Right. Um, so like I'd be interested so in. Like, it, does right. it double it? Because the, the huge, like, 60% loss is crazy to me. And if you keep an right. additional 30%, that would be amazing. Right. Um, but, and I just wonder yeah, if it across, would be like 95%. Or, right. Yeah. yeah, that is actually quite close to um, what we almost guarantee, that if your facility is using Corvus drones, 95% um, is kind of the baseline you can expect to achieve within months. Mm-hmm. And this awesome. involves working really closely with every customer because, again, as I said, every facility different. is different. Everyone uses different barcodes. There's there's a lot of uh, moving pieces there. Mm -hmm. Let's see. So um, let's see. Can can you tell me a bit about working with these customers? 
Um, um, and maybe, Disha, if you have a perspective on this, I want to try to get us all talking about the same amount. Um, sure. So, okay, since the team is pretty small right now, like, we are the ones who actually go to the deployment as well. Uh, and it's, it's good to have engineers on site as well, because if we build products that people cannot use in production, then it makes no sense. Uh, so going on site and interacting with customers, uh, we get a sense of what they want and we build accordingly. Uh, so like on site, uh, there have been instances where customers have told their stories, like uh, they spent hours on a Sunday night trying to locate one package which was lost. And that's where like, and if they lose something on Sunday that sets them back for the rest of the week because their week starts on Sunday. And uh, that's where our drones have been able to uh, get them a good amount of improvement, like because we have all the data stored and we can tell them exactly where what, where what package was seen. And it, it's helped them significantly improve their processes and dedicate resources to uh, actually getting packages out of work, so. That's cool. So does this mean that you have to tie the data that you guys collect into their existing package localization infrastructure? So like figuring out where all the packages are and the map of that? I imagine it's like a grid or something, like a, two, a 3D grid where they say it's in here or at this location on this shelf um, and you have to like locate the package and then map it to how they actually represent the location of the package. Is that true? Uh, yes. So every facility has their own warehouse management system, which is uh, like where every location is tagged as mm -hmm. depending on the rack they are in and the slot they are oh. in. So, so it's like a sticker is on the, so say we have three shelves or something high, that each shelf of those will have a sticker or something that says this is shelf one, this is shelf two, this is shelf three. Yeah. And so that's how you localize them? Yeah, so it's also aisles, like maybe yep, they're numbered the aisles. aisles. So they're aisles, then there are faces, like the two faces on each aisle. So then the next level is the face, and then they go by the level of the rack and then each level also has number of slots. So there's a hierarchical naming of each pallet position in the warehouse, uh, which they keep track of in their warehouse management system. And we uh, use the same mapping and we work with customers to integrate the data we collect into their warehouse management systems as well. So it's a big key value problem, effectively, with the key being the label of the shelf and then the value being whatever packages are on it kind of thing. And yes, that's, yeah. it, well, I guess, so if, if that's the case, it might not be, I, basically, was it challenging to kind of work with all of the different um, warehouse management setups that all of the different warehouses have? Or was there a challenge there? Uh, okay, Kobe, do you want to this? Sure, yeah. Um, this is just a huge pain generally integrating with uh, <laughs> yeah. the, okay. it's what I was assuming, but... the number of different systems out in the wild. Um, 
we have a couple of ways of integrating um, like from the very the simplest version which we can basically support for everyone is we just give them a digital data dump it's something like a, a csv or something of that kind which they can um, and parse back into their own systems value. yes yes csv that, is in comma separate it can be processed values. like an excel sheet exactly it's like it's essentially an excel sheet yeah and then and then we can also kind of go into slightly more advanced integrations where we have some api which they can pull for data or we can go the other way and we can push data to their apis this is again very facility specific very customer specific and it's essentially a custom integration for every new facility we want to give as much value to the customers as we can. So we uh, try to integrate with whatever their existing processes are and make them make it as easy as we can. Mm -hmm. Let's see, so now getting into your drone a little bit more. Um, so how, how I like just how large is it? It has the autonomous charging dock. Just tell me a bit about a bit more about it what sensors it has, what it, how large, what it looks like, everything. Misha, do you want uh, to start? Um, sure, yeah. Um, the drone is about... Uh, and this is the Corvus 1 we're talking about, correct? Great. Perfect. Yes, yeah. Uh, so it's basically two components. We have the landing pad, which is the charging dock for us, and the drone. Um, the charging station is about like one meter to 0.7 meters, maybe. And the drone is uh, probably, let's say, 0.4. Yeah, 0.4, 0.4. Yeah. Meters in diameter. Okay, so foot and a half, this kind of thing. Yeah. yeah and uh, sorry, the landing yeah. station is four feet or five feet, like a square kind of thing. And I saw it in a video, and I don't know if it's changed, but it's like a, a fiducial marker, like a QR tag, and then you have the charging dock in the middle of it. So I'm assuming that you're exactly. counting that in the five-foot width of the yes. launch yes. station. Yes, yeah. Okay. And we generally... And then, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. We generally mount this at a height where uh, forklifts can go through underneath it, and we're not causing any obstruction to general warehouse traffic um how did you how, what was the lesson learned for why you are mounting them above forklifts i assume that was like uh there's some story there so uh yeah like we generally mount the uh, landing pad and the drone to um like at the end of a warehouse tracks and uh, that is also a high traffic area for anybody who wants to go into the aisle or come out of the aisle. And uh, we do not want to cause any obstructions for them to take like a larger radius around the racks uh, because some of them are also narrow passages, which is difficult to get through. So we generally mount them at a height where the drone can uh, also operate without obstructing the traffic underneath it um did like uh it get run over or were people just frustrated that it was like a long path around or 
So um, we've had some close calls before, before we kind of realized that we should move it up even higher. So one of the things about forklifts is that um, they kind of have two modes of operation. So one is when they're just traveling along the ground and their forks are basically at ground level. And there's another thing where if you have to take packages off from a high rack, um, they basically extend up and then the whole thing goes up and the forks also go up with it. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens is, um, even though forklift drivers are instructed to um, not move around at full extension, um, sometimes full extension they do. meaning the fork all the way up. Exactly. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. That is correct. Um, so they're never supposed to actually be moving around with the whole thing extended and the forks all the way up because, as you can imagine, that's pretty dangerous. Attachment um, and stuff. Exactly. And, but it's actually it does happen sometimes, and then well. As you can imagine, they could hit our landing pad or they could um, hit, hit other stuff. Um, that is why we try to position it at such a place which minimizes any incidents of this kind. Yeah. Huh. So it's kind of, you have like a shelf side and then a few feet up, you'll have your um, actual landing pad, which is just exactly. a big five foot by five foot approximately. One point, mm -hmm. would you say seven exactly. meter square? Mm -hmm. Uh, 0. 0.7. Like so 1.2 by 0.7. It's yeah. 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 Okay. So some square that's suspended up there, yeah. like a little bird's nest. Yep. And that yep. that has the charging station mm -hmm. there. Um, your Corvus One drone, does it have um, like guards around the propellers or like how is it set up? So it's it's a quad rotor. It has four rotors, um, and each of those rotors has a propeller spinning, and that's how it lifts up. Do the propellers have guards around them so that they don't like hit anything, or is it not a problem? Um, that actually, um, there's a story behind that too. So um, <laughs> probably every decision has a story around. Yes, it. indeed, indeed. Um, so when we started, we actually did used to have propeller guards um, around the propellers. Um, but after like doing thousands of flights, uh, one of the things we realized was that if there is any kind of collision with anything, uh, the propeller guards don't really help in the first place. Um, they actually end up... So the reason they don't help is um, whatever material you build your propeller guards out of, um, they typically have some amount of flex to them. And what, what can happen is your propeller guard can kind of bend and hit your propellers instead. And that's kind of a no-win situation for everyone because then the drone, there's like a catastrophic failure. Mm -hmm. Just goes so, and falls down. Yeah, pretty much. Mashes on the warehouse floor. Okay. Pretty much. So the way we um, started to look at the problem was how can we prevent any kind of a situation where there could be a collision in the first place? And kind of what we've converged to is our autonomy stack maintains this safety envelope around the vehicle and we basically got rid of the the hardware prop guards and the software makes sure that the drone is just never close enough to get into any situation of that kind gotcha okay so you found basically you could just stay far enough away from everything so that you don't need pretty much any sort of propeller guards. And the propeller guards weren't even that good because they flex and they would just go into the propeller and then it would crash. So they'd be like for protecting fingers or something where I would stop it and I would hit the propeller guard, but then the propeller would hit the, the propeller mm -hmm. guard and then it would fall. Mm -hmm. um, 
so my fingers would be okay, but the drone would still suffer the same, mm -hmm. I don't know, falling from air. Um, why not just use really rigid, I guess, so you, you've eliminated the need for it. I, I just wonder about like really rigid propeller right. guards, but maybe they're heavy yeah. and they reduce your flight time or? Exactly, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, if you're going to design with propeller guards in mind, you need to kind of add a lot of extra weight to the vehicle. Um, which might be acceptable for, for certain companies or certain people working on drones. But um, for us, as, since we kind of designed around the problem, it, it just was never a thing. Yeah. And then, uh, Dishak, can you speak a little bit to the, or are you uh, doing something with the cable? No, I was just plugging in the charger. Ah, yes. Yeah, Elaine's a... Uh, have the computer turn off. Um, can can you speak a little bit to like safety concerns of customers? Because I guess I'm getting at what I'm getting at with the propeller guards is I wonder if people in the factory would want something like that. But um, just general safety things, safety concerns of the customer, this kind of thing. Oh uh, yeah, definitely. So safety is something we take very seriously because uh, it's a drone with motors spinning at like twenty thousand RPM, and we do not want to collide into anything or hurt anyone around. Uh, so we have a bunch of software and hardware fail-safes for uh, ensuring safety. Um, what are your hardware ones, out so of curiosity? We, we have a bunch of um, audio-visual cues that uh, we provide while taking off, while landing, while uh, in case uh, of an emergency. So you yeah. mean that the, the drone has a speaker and it will go like, I'm taking off now, or yeah. I'm landing now, or something like this, so people have some idea of its intention? Yeah. Uh, we what does have, it actually do? Uh, so we have buzzers on the drone, on the landing pad, which uh, make it known that it's going to take off now. It's doing something. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now we have a bunch of spotlights to like tell people where it's going to go, or it's flying above you, Please take note or something like that, and a uh, bunch of flights to tell you uh, what it's doing now. Like it's it's on a flight or it's charging, it's not charging, uh, stuff like that. Like anything that you can, as much as you can gather by just looking at the system. Uh, so you have visual yeah. indicators of its status, yeah. basically, um, or audible as well. Yes. Uh, do you do any, so I was thinking for hardware fail-safe, like if the drone does happen to malfunction, is there any like, because so you mentioned flying above people, um, is there any sort of like, I don't know, fail-safe or something if the drone does, say for some reason there's just like a seg fault on the drone, like worst case, and it just starts to fall. Uh, um, any, any recourse from there? Yes, definitely. That does happen sometimes, but uh, we have tried to resolve it with software and our low-level fail-safes. So in case of an emergency, uh, which can be like a mission computer uh, losing contact with mm -hmm. uh, the landing pad or something like that, or just even a sec fault, uh, we try to find a safe spot underneath the drone, like because we have visual information of everything around the drone we can uh, figure out a safe spot to land and the drone navigates itself and lands safely around without uh, 
external intervention. Gotcha. Well, what sensors do you have on the drone? Uh, so for our sensor stack, uh, we nearly have uh, an array of like 12 cameras on board. Uh, uh, are they all RGB to... or do they have like infrared or are there any, I'm uh, imagining like, um, like low light conditions or something. Uh, so maybe, and I think you have depth cameras as well, probably. Yeah, so they're all arranged in like geo fashion. So we have infrared cameras and then we also get depth information out of them. Uh, we have a bunch of IMUs on board as well uh, to give you uh, inertial information and uh, it's basically a visual inertial system. Gotcha. So you have a bunch of cameras. Are all of the cameras um, infrared depth cameras? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Ah. Okay. And there's no like, this is going to sound kind of silly, but there's no like parachute on board or something if the boat, I guess the drone doesn't like hit anything ever. Or it hasn't, and so thus you don't have to worry about it falling on people's heads or anything. Like Pretty you have a much. good track record, so it, it isn't there. Pretty much. And also another way we try to kind of deal with this problem at the root is we tell customers to schedule it in specific off hours um, mm -hmm. when there is no traffic in the aisles. And then we also do a, a lot of customer training and we train the workers there that if you see the drone and it's about to enter an aisle, just don't go in there, wait for it to come back. It's like probably going to spend like five uh, minutes there. So there's a lot of like kind of um, human interaction uh, between us and the customer and the workers there, which um, you give trains them, them to exactly. don't use the aisle if yeah. the drone is using the aisle. Exactly. Okay. Because Dishai, you mentioned it flying overhead and this kind of thing. So I was imagining like drone scanning people beneath, and that seems risky to me. Um, like right. I imagine like a propeller flies off or something that's like yes. really hard to control for. I mean, we have uh, safety systems in place, but obviously the safest is to not be there. Yep. Gotcha. So it can happen, yeah. like you can fly over someone, but it's not desirable because it's a little exactly. bit more risky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, invariably in the wild, we see that someone wanders in or someone just didn't pay attention to what we said. So we still design for that kind of extreme case where there's someone underneath it all the time. Um, but in reality, that's probably like 1% of our operational uh, flights. Yeah, I would imagine far, far less. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So you have this drone, it flies around, it, it uses depth cameras to get a sense of the distance it is from everything. It probably, so um, do you have to do like, do you have to map the warehouse first? Or how do you, so you bring this new drone to a new warehouse for a new customer. How do you set up the environment other than putting this nest at, and by nest, I mean the launch pad elevated um, for the drone. How, how else do you do the setup? Do you do some sort of mapping? Do you fly the drone around? What kind of things? Um, so yes, you are exactly right about this. Uh, apart from setting the nest, we also pre-map the warehouse. Uh, which means we get like geometric and semantic information from the warehouse and give the drone a pre-mapped environment. Um, based on that, we can uh, define regions or slots that we want to fly in and uh, schedule missions accordingly and fly exactly there. 
Gotcha. And uh, so for mapping it, you just fly the drone around and have it, what was it? I so, didn't quite understand. Right, right, right. So um, the exact process we cannot talk about because it's something we've developed Absolutely. internally. Um, and it's actually one of the hardest parts of doing this, even though it may not yeah, initially seem so. Um, um, but at the end of the day, we're taking measurements, um, some by hand, some using the vehicle, and then we're kind of putting these together and generating kind of a unified map for um, the vehicles to use. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. so you will custom generate a specific a map for the warehouse, yeah, and true. then you go off of that. Um, exactly. Do you have problems? I guess these shelves, if they're really tall, um, you don't have a, a problem where they'll like move a few inches or a few feet on one end as much. Right. Yeah, we've, we've actually seen that. Yeah, yeah, that does occur. It's ridiculous again, but it does happen. Like we have to map it again um, or whatever. So no, so we actually designed that. into the system. Yeah, so we have a map update method, which basically deals with um, minor change in the environment automatically. So every time a vehicle goes out, um, we can kind of update the map and then share it across the fleet. So all of the vehicles know that, okay, this part changed a little bit. So next time I go there, I know what to do. I see. So you're updating a little bit with your map. So you're doing some sort of simultaneous localization and mapping exactly. on your flight. And how does the, um, so when your drone, I saw, I saw on the website that you only need internet connected to the launch pad. Um, and so when your drone goes away, it needs to probably stay within a range of the launch pad, like why, like some sort of, maybe it has a router or something on the launch pad, or does it just, um, does it just go back to where the launch pad is and it doesn't need that internet connection for that period of time that it is in flight? Right. So, um, the way we designed the system, actually, we don't need any sort of uh, connection back to the launch pad um, while in flight. So everything, all computation happens on board. Um, wow. There is a wireless link, but we don't actually need it while flying. It's just there for, um, there's a bunch of reasons why it's there, but we don't actually uh, require it while flying. Um, also, is it just sending like logging data or something, or what? Pretty the... much, pretty much. Gotcha. Basically, information about flight progress, stuff like that. Oh, okay, that's cool. Yeah. And then, but you don't need that actual the controller and the the getting the data and save saving the data and everything. That all happens on board on the drone. Exactly. It happens all on the drone. And that's another design decision, which was actually driven by uh, stuff we saw. So warehouses, like, typically it's a bunch of metal racks, right? It's it's a Faraday cage. And they're terrible, terrible RF propagation environments. Yeah. So any sort of wireless is uh, destined to fail. Mm-hmm. So that was that was why you decided to put all the computation on the drone. Exactly. Huh. That's amazing. I started um, in research um, in my undergrad doing this kind of thing where it was trying to put a drone, all the computation on a drone, and then having it localize and maintain a swarm formation. And it was really, really difficult. This was like 10 years ago or something. And it's impressive now to have everything. And you're like unbelievable suite of cameras on your drone, too. It's amazing how far things have come in the, in the last yeah. 10 years. Hmm. Also, like, so, we have extremely yeah, long eyes in the warehouse as well. So, 
that uh, supporting that kind of Wi-Fi range is uh, almost impossible unless like you have various access points around it. Uh, so we just had to compress everything to onboard computation. Mm -hmm. Let's see. So now talking a bit more about Corvus as a company. So you guys, you mentioned you started in 2017. Um, will you tell me a little, just how did you decide to start a company? And then Disha, I'd love to hear how did you decide to be employee number two after the co-founders? Yeah, sure. I can start. Um, so basically, um, so the company was uh, myself, Jackie, our CEO, and then our two other co-founders, Jonathan and Brian. And all of us um, kind of happened to come together. Um, it was like a matter of luck or chance almost. Um, so the, as the story goes, um, I knew Brian and then Jackie knew Jonathan. Mm -hmm. And um, then Jackie found me on the internet in some random IRC chat room, and I was helping <laughs> people with drone problems or something of that sort. And cool. um, I kind of got connected there and um, decided to kind of start looking into the kinds of use cases which we could um, automate. Because um, personally, I'm really into automating anything that is automatable, uh, just because people should be spending their time doing more high-impact things. Um, so automation is really a big part of my life. Um, and kind of, I think this is true also for the other co-founders. All of them really care about um, kind of this problem space. And we sort of came together, and it was a really great, great team um that that we started with basically so brian brian was our um hardware guy he's our lead of hardware today um he does all of the so anything you see on the drone um it's it's brian basically um, all the hardware all of the basically every piece and then jonathan is our chief of software he does a ton of work um, both on the autonomy stack and also kind of the um, almost, it's almost harder, I would say, kind of the customer integration side, which is um, integrating with all these custom systems, um, some of which are mm -hmm. from the 90s, uh, stuff like that. And Gosh. then Jackie is our CEO, and basically, well, yeah, he does, he does everything. Mm -hmm. And then all of us came together in 2017. Um, this was like, I think some, some, some point in the middle of 2017, and... I told Jackie that, okay, I know this great, great um, hardware guy, um, my friend, we could probably uh, think of doing something. And all of us came together and decided to start Corvus. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And um, how did you pick the opportunity? Like, how did you pick this specific problem to work on? Right. So um, Jackie's family back in China, um, they were uh, one of the very first generation entrepreneurs in China. And he had actually kind of firsthand seen the problems that warehouses go through. And kind of this, um, like this huge thing, like as an outsider, um, like I personally had no idea about what um, problems warehouses and generally like industrial stuff people uh, there go through. And Jackie kind of introduced us to this whole new problem space where these sort of um, non-sexy use cases 
which could still benefit hugely from automation. Like it's not self-driving cars, but there's still a huge opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. That's awesome that Jackie knew so much. And then, um, Disha, you joining as number two, how is that for you? Like, how, how did you decide to join this company? And how did you, like, your interest in startups at this stage and this kind of thing? So it was a bit of both. Like, uh, I personally always wanted to work in an early stage startup because uh, it gives you the opportunity to work on the entire stack, uh, get a sense of how everything's interacting with each other, have a good amount of ownership on the code as well. Um, and the amount you get to learn is much more than you would if you were working just in a subsystem uh, as part of a big team. Uh, so it kind of worked out that Jackie reached out to me uh, on LinkedIn, I think. And I was in Austin at the time and I flew down to Boston to meet the team. And I was really intrigued by the work they were doing and just like being a small team, uh, like they had come far, I guess, with the hardware and the software uh, at the time, but I saw opportunity to contribute as well and get the system uh, to where it is now today. Mm -hmm. Where are you guys located? So we're in Boston, Massachusetts at the, uh, at the moment, yeah. Awesome. Um, let's see, and then, just a more general question about Corvus. How are you guys funded? So are you receiving investment or have you received yes. like a series A or like, where are you guys at? Right, um, we're a pre-A company. We went through Y Combinator in 2018. Uh, we were like the YC uh, summer, summer 2018 batch. Yeah. Cool. And so you've received, what are they, they they give it's it's like seed funding kind of thing yeah, from Y it's essentially seed funding yes gotcha and then um, you've just been running on that and maybe pretty much uh, are you getting revenue from your customers yet in yeah, a way that can yes, like prop up course. their company yeah exactly yeah so we've been we've actually been deploying for about one and a half years now we've been doing That's pilots exciting. before that but we've had. We, we're doing production deployments for quite a while now. And all of these are active revenue streams for the company. Gotcha. And so are you guys bootstrapping effectively where you're reinvesting your profits back in and you're not going to see? Gotcha. Nice. I like that model. Do you think that you'll be seeking investment as a way to kind of grow faster or kind of stay off that and keep bootstrapping and keep your equity really large or... What, what right. Um, going forward, that's that's completely open question. We are open to outside investment um, because we do want to kind of grow exponentially. We're kind of hitting the point where uh, we want to scale up um, the engineering team, the sales team, all of that uh, really quickly. So mm -hmm. we're of course open to that, but um, everything's on the table. And you have to find a good fit, probably. Right. Because uh, you guys are in a yeah. powerful situation where you're not exactly. Like, burning through your money or Pretty anything much. and needing investment, um, possibly under bad terms, these kinds of things. Yep. Awesome. Now, let's see. Um, I see that we're coming close to the time that we were saying we should end at. Um, so what I'd like to do for our last 
little bit is just ask you guys general questions about like where robotics is going and then advice things. Um, so Dishak, could you start? And I would like to know what advice you would give to like a 20 year old you. Um, okay, I think that's pretty straightforward because uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, okay, my twenties was not <laughs> long ago. <laughs> yes, that okay, too. Well, uh, I mean, to someone else, I don't know. Yeah. Well, to, uh, perhaps, to, but... to young roboticists, I would say uh, just do what you love and um, do not be afraid. Like. If, if it's an engineering solution that you don't know the answer to, uh, keep at it because that is what engineers are here for, like to think of problems and solve them even when you do not think of answers at the first go. So uh, just in general, the problem solving aspect is engineering appeals to me and that is what I love doing. And if you're good at it, keep doing it. Mm -hmm. I see. Kabir, same question. Advice for a younger you? Advice for younger me. Um, let's see. I think one of the big things um, that's kind of been a part of my um, engineering journey has been open source software. Um, I feel really strongly about open source and also the stack at Corvus, which we've built, it leverages a lot of open source pieces. Uh, for example, we use ROS1, we use um, the PX4 autopilot stack, and I kind of started interacting with all of these at a very young age. And I think um, kind of working with um, a lot of experienced people in the same field, um, that kind of experience can only come from um, being on a team like individually there's only so much you can do like you can take classes you can study you can look up stuff yourself but i think um being a part of an open source software team um, really gave me a bunch of skills which i use every day now um, i would really really advise people to kind of pick a project you love or pick a space you love find a project in that space and then see where see where it goes you'll learn a lot on the way Mm -hmm. And what, what are some of the most valuable parts to you of contributing to open source? So obviously you're learning skills, but like what specific things were most valuable in your experience? Right. So when I started um, like working on drones, I think this was when I was in middle school or something. Um, I started um, looking at kind of what the options were if I wanted to build my own drone. And I didn't know anything at that point. I was just like a middle school kid. Um, and then eventually uh, I, I came across the PX4 Autopilot, which is this open source software stack for drones. And what this lets people do is um, there is a certain set of supported hardware and you take this open source software, put it on that, and then boom, you have your own drone. Mess around a little bit with the hardware, but um, effectively it's a, it's a pretty easy solution if you're trying to build something on your own with no experience before. And eventually what, what my, my story personally looked like was I started using PX4 as a user, but eventually I started contributing back to upstream um, a lot of the things which I wanted to do, but the features didn't exist um, at the time. And eventually what this led into was I became a part of the core um, kind of maintenance team, which maintains the entire project. 
and that that branches out into helping other people doing code reviews um just a lot of skills which you there was no way i thought i would have learned unless i kind of got into it in the first place mm -hmm. awesome now let's see wrapping up um is there any links that you guys would like to share so in the show notes we'll put a link to corvus's website um anything else worth sharing Sure, we have this uh, demo reel of Corvus One, which we'd probably like to show off. Um, I can send you the link after the talk, Perfect. and that'll be that'll be pretty nice, I think. Do you guys have social media or anything you'd like to share? Dashad, do you have anything? Um, yeah, we do have uh, Corvus on like the Corvus website and Corvus on Twitter, and we'll send you all the links. Yeah, we'll send your Twitter handles and LinkedIn and whatever else. Okay, great. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with both of you. It's been a I'm pleasure talking to you, Drew. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Disha and Kabir. Thank you again to our founding sponsor, Open Robotics. And I hope to see you next time.